Good morning, church. So glad to be able to be back with you. Uh, this is the third week in our series, and uh, each week of this series, we have journeyed through the account of the crucifixion and then the resurrection of Jesus, and each week we've zoomed in on a particular character in that account, and we've asked the Lord to help us see ourselves in that character, and we're going to continue that track this morning. Uh, but by way of introduction, I wanted to speak with you for a couple of minutes about justice and about the nature of justice. I believe that uh, there is an innate desire inside of us for justice to be done. There is a love and a desire to see justice done inside every one of us. One of the places where we see this come out most clearly, I think, is in the lives of our children. Uh, I know for us, uh, for, for many years, if you have children, you probably know this experience as well, for many years, we only watched movies and read books that had happy endings. So I, up until very recently, my children were under the impression that every story had a happy ending, that there was no such thing as uh, a, a movie or a book in which the hero didn't win, uh, in which there wasn't some kind of full resolution, and in which the villain of the story did not get what they deserved. That, to them, was a happy ending. That's what it meant. Now, if you've watched a lot of these movies for children, you know that there's a general track that they follow in the terms of the plot. And as it gets close to the end of the movie, there's always some kind of final battle or final conflict between the hero and the villain. And then there seems to be this moment where you feel like that even though you know who the hero is and you know who the villain is, there's this moment where you think, oh no, the villain isn't going to be punished. He or she is not going to get what they deserve. And you can't believe or your children can't believe that that evil penguin or that evil lion or the wicked stepmother or whoever it is cannot believe that this villain is going to actually walk away from this without being punished. And then usually the tables get turned and they get exactly what they deserve. Now, when that happens at our house, there is a righteous cry of justice that goes up. My kids will cheer at the demise of a villain. Because I think inside every one of us, there is a desire for justice. We want to see justice served. Now, in reality, justice for us is at best an aspirational value. In other words, we might want to see justice served, and we might seek to see justice served, and we might even set up a system in which we are trying to have justice served, but because we are creatures who have been marred and broken by sin, absolute and complete justice is really an impossibility for us. That's because in our sin, we're never going to have the absolute complete picture or we're never going to be able to be completely separated from some sort of bias in ourselves, or we're never going to be able to determine what the exact, precise consequence and punishment should be for an action. So we are, at best, a people seeking justice, but recognizing that true justice is something that can only be doled out by the Lord. Because true justice, at its heart, in its simplest terms, true justice means 
that everyone gets exactly what they deserve. No more, no less. Everyone gets exactly what they deserve. And in that definition, we find the reason why the gospel is so scandalous. The reason the gospel is so scandalous is not because of the pain and the torture that is inflicted on Jesus. The reason why the gospel is so scandalous is because the gospel tells us that the guilty go free. Now, as you read through the account of the gospel, it's, it's one large story of what's happening during the last week of Jesus' life. But inside of that account of Jesus' last week, there are these individual stories that make up the larger narrative. And there's one of these stories within the story that is a very vivid depiction of this truth of the scandalous nature of the gospel, that the guilty go free and the innocent are punished. And the story within a story that depicts this for us is the story of a man named Barabbas. And even though you find this account in all of the Gospels in various forms, the one that we're going to focus on this morning comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 27, beginning in verse 15. And so if you'd like to turn there in God's word, we're going to read this together. Matthew, chapter 27, verse 15, begins like this. Now it was... The governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. And at that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ. For he knew that it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. When Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then? with Jesus, who is called the Christ. And they all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But then they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your responsibility. And all the people answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. If you remember last week or you were here last week, you'll know that last week the character that we focused on appears in this account as well. Last week we spent time talking about about Pilate. And what we said about Pilate was that Pilate desperately wanted to try to find a middle road with Jesus. That Pilate did not want to commit one way or the other. And in this account, it seems like Pilate has found a middle road. He has found a way out of this situation. Now, when Pilate presents this choice to the crowd, He has two priorities in mind. There are two things that Pilate wants to accomplish in order to get out of this situation with Jesus. 
His highest priority, thing number one that he wants to accomplish is that he wants to curry favor with the crowd. He wants to be the popular politician. So he wants to make sure that he is giving the crowd what they want. That is priority number one. But there's a secondary priority that Pilate also wants to take care of. See, Pilate resents the fact that these Jewish leaders have presumed upon his authority. And the Jewish leaders know that they don't have any power to execute someone. They're under Roman rule. But they have backed Pilate into a corner. They have forced his hand. And he doesn't like that. So if Pilate could find a way to curry favor with the crowd and at the same time put these Jewish leaders back in their place and remind them of who's really in charge of this territory, that would be an ideal situation. And he thinks he has it. See, the text tells us that it was customary for the governor at this time to release a prisoner to the crowd, to make them happy on this holiday that they were celebrating. And it doesn't matter if the prisoner has been convicted or not. can release a prisoner to the crowd. And so Pilate thinks, surely, if I give the people a choice between this Jesus, who I've heard is so popular with the crowd, and a convicted criminal, I can give them the choice. The people will choose Jesus, he will go free, and when he goes free, it will be a subtle reminder to these religious leaders of who really has the power in this area. It would be a win for Pilate. So imagine the scene in the jail for a second. Here's a man who has been tried and convicted. There's no question about his innocence. He is absolutely guilty. And more than being guilty, he's actually already been sentenced, and all he's doing is just killing time until the day of his execution. He's waiting inside of some dank, dark jail jail cell. And then he hears the door open. And he hears the footfall of Roman soldiers coming down the hallway. Dust is kicking up as they make their way toward him. And then he hears the key go in the lock and and turn. And then he hears the, the rusty hinges squeak. And he thinks to himself, well, this is it. Convicted. The day has come. Nothing I can do to escape now. The soldiers grab him roughly by the arms and they drag him down the hallway. He's dirty, his clothes are tattered, he hasn't eaten well since he's been in prison, hasn't bathed in weeks. They throw him out the door into the sunlight and at first it blinds his eyes because it's been a long time since he's been outside. But as his eyes slowly start to adjust to the glare of the sun, he is surprised to see that there's actually a crowd of people standing before him. And this is Barabbas who is put before the crowd. And then Pilate, the governor, starts to speak. And Pilate gives this crowd of people a choice. He says, who do you want? Do you want Jesus or do you want Barabbas? I'm going to release one of them to you. You choose. Which one do you want? And this is where the whole thing goes sideways for Pilate. Because he thought, he thought, surely they would choose the innocent man. Pilate knew he was innocent. Everybody knew he was innocent. He knew that these charges were trumped up by the religious leaders. The text tells us that Pilate knew it was because they were envious of his popularity. That's why they brought him to him to begin with. So imagine Pilate's surprise when he hears a few voices in the crowd, quietly. Barabbas. 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 And then the few voices become many. And instead of the words being said in singular fashion, they start to come together in a kind of chant, Barabbas, Barabbas, 
Barabbas. And with each time they say the name, the voices get a little bit louder and the pitch of the crowd gets a little bit more violent. And Pilate looks out and realizes that suddenly this crowd that was before him is quickly turning into a lynch mob. He sees violence and anger in their eyes. They are bloodthirsty. Barabbas, Barabbas, they chant. And then about the innocent man that's standing there. They wave their fists in anger and through gritted teeth they yell, crucify him. And so Pilate bends to the will of the crowd. The guilty is released. The innocent is punished. The guilty is released. This is a microcosm of the gospel. Because the story of the gospel is that the guilty go free while the innocent is punished. Now, if that's the story of the gospel and we are Christians here this morning, then that means that I can say and you can say, we can all say this together, that in this story, I am Barabbas. And in this story, you are Barabbas. Now, if we start piecing together the account From the other Gospels, we start to learn a little bit more about who Barabbas is, and it convinces us even more that that's true, that we are collectively Barabbas in this story, the guilty one sentenced to death. We know, for example, from the accounts in Mark and Luke that Barabbas was not just a criminal. They tell us specifically that Barabbas was convicted of the crime of insurrection, so he was a rebel, that he had spent time, at least on one occasion, trying to throw off the authority of those that ruled him. So Barabbas was a rebel. And I'm a rebel, and so are you. This is what sin is at its core. So we make a terrible mistake when we think about sin that we commit as just being a wrong choice or just an occasion of a, a, a bad move or a little oops that we kind of made. That's not what sin is. Sin at a fundamental level is rebellion against the rule and the reign and the authority of God who created us and created the world. As our creator and creator of the world, the Lord has set up rules by his authority by which he expects us to lovingly and joyfully submit confident in his good character as our king. So every time we go against what the Lord has said is his revealed will for the world, every time we commit an act of sin, what we are implicitly saying with that act is that we refuse to live under the authority of God and would rather live under our own authority. Or in other words, we're saying that we believe we know what's best for us better than you know what's best for us. So we rebel against this authority. We are rebels, just like Barabbas. But the Gospels go on and tell us more about Barabbas' specific crime of rebellion. The book of Mark tells us not only that he was a rebel, tells us that he killed a man during this rebellion. So Barabbas is a rebel, but Barabbas is also a murderer. And I'm a murderer, and so are you. Now, of course, you might push back here and say, well, not really. I mean, not really a murderer. 
have not ever actually committed that physical act. And yet, if you believe what the Lord Jesus says just several chapters earlier in his Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew, that we have committed this sin because as the Lord would talk about murder, it goes well beyond the physical act of taking someone's life. Jesus says if you've thought ill of someone in your heart, if you've wished bad upon someone in your heart, then you have committed murder. I've done that. You've done that. Barabbas did it physically. So Barabbas was a rebel. Barabbas was a murderer, and so are we. Then Barabbas went free. Convicted, tried, sentenced to death. No hope of this reversal. He is moments earlier sitting in a jail cell waiting for his sentence to be fully carried out. And then he finds himself walking from a platform free. Free to go to dinner. See his family. Take a shower. Play with children. Go to work. Whatever it is he wants to do, he's he's free. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you also are free. That the Lord has freed you. He's freed you from the bondage of sin and death. He's freed you from the eternal consequence of the sin that you have committed. He's, He's freed you. So just like Barabbas was a murderer and a rebel and then released, so are we, rebels and murderers, and yet released because of the gospel. The story of Barabbas is our story in one way or another because it's the story of the gospel. It's an amazing thing when you think about it and scandalous when you think about it even further. I remember when I was 10 or 11 years old, Uh, I had a friend come over to our our house. My parents weren't home for the afternoon, and so I had a friend come over, and he happened to bring with him, you know, every 10 or 11-year-old boy's uh, greatest dream come true, which is a bag full of firecrackers. So we lived in the middle of a community. There's not really an appropriate place to pop off firecrackers in the middle of town, and so we we did what any red-blooded American boys would do. We popped them off in the garage. So 45 minutes, an hour, that's all we did, just lighting firecracker after firecracker after firecracker, going off in the garage over and over and over again. And then, and then he went home, and, and uh, I went and did something else. And then several hours later, my dad came home, and my dad found me in my room, and he said, son, I, I just saw Mr. Johnson across the street. And Mr. Johnson said there was a terrible racket going on in the neighborhood today. There, Sounded like gunfire or fireworks or something going off all afternoon long. Now, do you know anything about that? No, sir. (laughs) Not a thing. Don't know a thing. Maybe Mr. Johnson's hearing aid was acting up because I was outside too. Didn't hear a thing, nothing, not a thing. And my dad said, okay. And I just walked away free. I want us to make sure that we are not thinking of the gospel like this. In fact, if you wanted a better illustration about what's going on here, imagine the same scenario that I just described, but instead of just coming and speaking to me, my father came to me with handfuls full of blown fireworks and presented them toward me and told me, I found this in the garage and 
not only him telling me what Mr. Johnson said, but actually bringing Mr. Johnson with him. And, and it's not only him giving verbal testimony, but he said, I actually looked in the garage and I saw you. Now, imagine that. So there you are, convicted by the evidence, nowhere to go, no excuse to make. The only thing you can do is just own the fact that, yes, it was absolutely me. Yes, I knew it was wrong. Yes, I did it. And you sit there and wait for the punishment. And then imagine my dad bringing my brother into the room and punishing him instead of me. See, it's scandalous. The guilty go free. And the innocent is punished. This is what is true of us in the gospel, friends. That we have no excuse before the Lord. Every mouth is closed before God. We don't have a leg to stand on. We are tried and convicted of cosmic rebellion. There is no further plea. There is no way out. There is no one coming to testify on our behalf. We are guilty, just awaiting the sentence, and the Lord punishes his son Jesus in our stead. And at the cross, the just wrath of God and the consequence of our sin is laid on him. And we go free. Free to live, free to worship, free to relate to God as a father instead of an enemy. We go free in the gospel, even though we are guilty. For God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. We go free. And that is a fine place for us to stop the message. We could stop it right there. The gospel has been preached, and it is, whether it's the first time you've heard it or whether you've heard it all your life, the Lord is faithful. He'll remind us of this great truth that we are the guilty, and in Christ, the guilty go free. But if we stop the message right there, there's still one question that lingers in my mind, one detail about this story that nags at me, and maybe it's nagging at you right now too, and the detail involves the response of the crowd. See, maybe you're familiar enough with the Easter story to know what happened just a few days before this, that this same crowd was the crowd who heralded the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. This same crowd that chanted, crucify, crucify, were the same people that only days earlier chanted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These same people who had their fists clenched in rage and pumped them as they were calling for Jesus' death were the same people that had palm branches in those fists that they laid down at his feet. So the, the question is, what happened? What happened to this crowd that was so ardently and exuberantly in favor of Jesus only days earlier? What happened to make them turn their back on him to the point where they demanded the release of a convicted criminal and the death of the Lord Jesus? What happened? Well, if we go back and again start to piece together some of the details about who Barabbas is, 
we come to understand this a little bit more. So let's, first of all, just look back at the text and realize that in this text in Matthew, it tells this that Barabbas was a well-known prisoner. So this is not an anonymous prisoner. And once again, the accounts in Mark tell us what his crime was. It wasn't theft, it was insurrection. He was arrested for insurrection. And Luke tells us very specifically that this insurrection or rebellion took place within the city of Jerusalem. Mark tells us that he was one, that Barabbas was one of the rebels that were in prison who had committed murder in this rebellion. So we know that there was a rebellion. We know that it was in Jerusalem. We know that Barabbas was a violent part of this, maybe one of the leaders, and we know that he was well-known for his crimes. Now, if we bring in another fact from history, it helps us even more, because historians tell us that around this time in history, there were these roaming bands of Jewish brigands. So, were these people who went around and saw it as their job to make trouble for the ruling Roman authorities, that they would cause all kinds of havoc, they would steal from Roman citizens, in some cases they would even give that money to Jewish peasants. And the peasants loved these people. They thought of them like Robin Hood, folk heroes, guys that were really committed to the cause, guys that wanted to see political change and see the Roman government brought down and the Jewish people have freedom to lead themselves again. And Barabbas was probably one of these people. So are you starting to see it now? This is no common prisoner. Instead, we have a participant and a violent one in that in some kind of public political rebellion against the Romans. Now, there's one more detail to drip in here that's going to make it even more clear because depending on what version of the Bible you read, some versions of the book of Matthew actually tell us Barabbas's full name, which was Jesus Barabbas. Now, that actually shouldn't be surprising to us because Jesus was a very common name during this time be the equivalent of being named John or Joe or something like that in our culture. There would have been seven Jesuses in his Hebrew class at school, okay? So, but it does help us see with some clarity what Pilate did, even though he didn't know he was doing it. So I want you to imagine this scenario again. Imagine the question. Here on this side you have one man, and here on this side you have another man. Pilate stares out at the crowd and says, which one do you want? Do you want Jesus of Nazareth or do you want Jesus Barabbas? Come on, tell me, which Jesus do you want? Because I got two of them up here. And maybe the crowd heard it more like this. Which Jesus do you want? Do you want this Jesus? Jesus of Nazareth? This Jesus who says, pray for your enemies, love them, and pray for those who persecute you? Do you want this Jesus who, even though you've tried to make him king thousands of times over the last three years, has denied that throne? Do you want this Jesus who makes friends with the lowest members of your outcasts? 
Do you want this Jesus who befriends traitors like tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners? Do you want this Jesus who says, give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what is God's? Is that the Jesus that you want or do you want this Jesus? Do you want this Jesus, the Jesus of action, the political revolutionary? Do you want this Jesus who's not afraid to take matters into his own hands? This Jesus of courage. This Jesus who wants to overthrow the government. This Jesus, the political rebel. You want the Jesus of peace? You want the Jesus of violence? Which Jesus do you want? And maybe over the course of that week, the crowd had come to realize that this Jesus, the Jesus of Nazareth, was not the Jesus that they wanted at all. So you have to realize that this time, people, the people's idea of a Messiah had little to do with being saved from your sins. They didn't want somebody to save them from their sins. They wanted somebody to save them from the Romans. They didn't want a suffering servant. They wanted a conquering general. They wanted someone who would restore the glory of Israel, who would make them free again, to make it was like in past generations in the days of King David. That's who they were looking for. And this guy over here, this Jesus, well, he fits the bill. This one, not so much. So Pilate says to the crowd, I've got two Jesuses here. Which one do you want? Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus Barabbas? And this is a very penetrating question for us this morning. Perhaps the Lord would look out at us this morning and, says, and say, which Jesus do you want? Because you've got a couple of options. And if we were really honest with ourselves, I wonder how many of us would have to admit that over the course of the last week, time and time again, we've chosen this Jesus over Jesus of Nazareth. Maybe we would have to admit That in our lives, we want a Jesus who just agrees with all of our opinions. That we would say we want a Jesus, for example, that we don't actually come to on the front end and ask about the choices that we're going to make. That we don't actually ask him about the job that we take. We don't ask him about the house that we buy. We don't ask him about the way that we spend our money or our time. We don't ask him about those things. We just simply do what we want to do and then ask him to bless the decisions that we've already made. We want a rubber stamp kind of savior in that way. Or maybe we would say we want a Jesus that hates all the same people that we do. That there's a certain group of society that we have a distaste for. Maybe it's because of their political party, or maybe it's because of their ethnicity, or maybe it's because of their upbringing, or maybe it's because of their whatever. And we want a Jesus that feels the same way about those people that we do. Or maybe there is some belief that we have as an individual or as a family that's a a very, very strong personal conviction. And yeah, there's nothing in the Bible necessarily about it, but still, it's really important to us. Maybe it's a particular conviction about how we educate our children. Or maybe it's a particular conviction about 
how you're supposed to vote or not vote. Or maybe it's a particular conviction about entertainment choices. And we believe this so strongly that we've come to equate it with the gospel. And we want a Jesus that will come alongside us and put his arm around us and say, yes, I, I agree with you. So the question for us is maybe the same question that the crowd was asked. Which Jesus do you want? Do you want the Jesus that always agrees with you? Or do you want the Jesus that you really need? See, we are not only Barabbas in this story. We are also the crowd that clamored for his release. But there's good news for us today. There's good news for us as Barabbas and the crowd. And the good news is that in just a couple of weeks... This same crowd is going to be here again. And this same crowd is going to look before them and see someone else standing there. And it's not going to be Jesus this time, but it is going to be the guy who denied Jesus three times on the night of his crucifixion. And in just a few weeks, Peter is going to stand before this same crowd and he's going to boldly declare, therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And this same crowd that is now chanting, crucify him, crucifying, is going to cry out, being cut to the heart, and say to Peter and the rest of the disciples, brothers, what should we do? And Peter is going to tell them that there is hope for you. Repent and be baptized. Turn and come back. For what you will find amazingly is that this same Jesus that you rejected is offering you eternal life. Friends, I wonder if you would consider this morning, which Jesus do you want? Which Jesus do you want? Do you want the one that always agrees with you? Or do you want the one that the Father has made, both Lord and Christ? And if you find yourself looking over the course of the last week or month or years, choosing this Jesus over and over again, then there is such good news for you today. Because you can repent and embrace the one that has been made both Lord and Christ. Father, I would pray that this would happen in our hearts. Help us to deal honestly with ourselves as you deal honestly with us. And we pray, Lord, by your grace that you would help us to see those moments where we are choosing a Jesus of our own making. And you would give us the courage to admit that we don't actually need the Jesus that we want. We need the real Jesus. Thank you that the gospel is for us, for the guilty, and that in the gospel, the guilty go free. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.